Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Please turn to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 24. That can be found on page 836. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good evening. I'm going to begin by talking about a time uh, when, in my Christian life, when I went through significant and serious doubt. I was a Christian for a number of years and then went to university. Uh, you know, Western Sydney kids, so I went to the other end of town, went to Sydney Uni. And I remember stepping into one of my first tutorials and uh, people were talking. And I remember one student said, well, we all know that God is dead. And I'm sitting there being like, okay, <laughs> really? No one told me. And that was the beginning of a doubt growing in my heart. I remember having a conversation with a Muslim man at, at uni, and he was challenging me. He said, hey, actually, is Jesus God? You just put those words in his mouth. And that was another step where I began to question, was actually Jesus God? Why did I believe that? My parents told me, you grew up in church, they told me. But why do I believe that Jesus is God? And this doubt grew and grew, and for about a whole year, I had this serious doubt. Now, I was a youth leader at the time at church. I was a Christian for a while, and yet I had this doubt. I knew it was okay for skeptics, for seekers, for new Christians to have doubt, but for me... Are Christians allowed to doubt? Matthew 11, what was just read to us, engages with the important topic of doubt. And we're going to look at when they arise, what do you do with them? What does God think about them? That you share them or should be ashamed of them? And what's the difference between a doubt and disbelief? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with doubts. Chapter 11 starts with a man in prison. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You sense that uncertainty, that unsureness? John has a doubt. Now remember, this is not just any John. This is John the Baptist, Right? He was the cousin of Jesus, the unborn child that leapt for joy when he heard that Jesus was coming along. This is John the Baptist who boldly proclaimed in the desert, repent, the Lamb of God has come and takes away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, who saw the Spirit descend on him and a voice, the Father in heaven, saying, this is my son who is well pleased. And yet John is saying, I'm not so sure anymore. I think I believe you're the Messiah, Jesus, but I ain't 100% certain. This is my first point, and maybe my most important. If John the Baptist had doubts, do you not think it okay for you to? 
But my question is why? Why does John have doubts? David Platt's been helpful uh, this week as a reading him, and he helpfully unpacks this passage and looks at the anatomy of doubts. Where does doubt stem from? A couple of things, highlights from this passage. One is doubts often arise due to difficult situations. I mean, where is John? He's in prison. In Matthew chapter 4, he gets placed in there, and he's been in there a long time because of Herod, right? And John is experiencing shame and hunger and physical torment and an emotional struggle as he sat alone in prison. And that's often where doubts come from. In your life, when that cancer diagnosis happens, when the sudden death of a loved one, that profound betrayal of someone you trusted, you go through divorce, you have experienced tragedy, multiple tragedies, that will shake up your world. And that's where doubts will come from. Why? Has that happened to you? Alongside difficult circumstances, there's often unmet expectations. I mean, for John, Jesus was not the Messiah he expected. I mean, Isaiah chapter 61 says, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And yet, he's still in prison. Rome still ruled. The religious leaders were still corrupt. Since Jesus arrived on the scene, not much had changed. What kind of Messiah is this? John's expectations were here, and what was happening was about here. Unmet expectations. And chances are in your life, as you follow Jesus, right, you don't want to go closer to him, grow in godliness, there'll be a whole bunch of expectations that you have, whether you realize it or not. You get to a certain stage in life, you thought I'd, thought I'd be married now, I thought I'd be happily married now, I thought I'd have kids now, I thought my kids would be walking with the Lord, I thought I'd have a house, I thought my health would be better, I thought my health would improve, I thought I'd be more enjoying God. A whole bunch of expectations we think. And yet, here is reality. That you've been faithful to God, but it seems like God has not delivered. And that can bring about doubts. But another thing to know is doubts are contagious. I mean, John's doubt here of whether Jesus is the Messiah is actually the bigger conversation that was happening in Galilee at the time. And so I don't know whether John had this doubt himself, or he's just voicing what other people had planted into his heart and mind. But it's not an uncommon thing. You know when you're alone with social media, and you're, you know, whether it's TikTok, social, Facebook, whatever it is, and you're, you're consuming content, easy bite-sized content, which may be full of half-lies or lies, and you raise up doubt after doubt, which you may not have had in the first place, but it puts them in your head. And they're so easy con- to consume... And then all of a sudden, let them consume you. Doubts are very contagious. So that's a bit of an anatomy. Why is it that we doubt in the first place? But what this passage helpfully does is it shows us what do you do with them? Doubts are normal. Doubts arise because all sorts of reasons. But what do you do when they come along? Some of you right now are going through a season of doubt. That for whatever it is, that there's a serious doubt that you have of God, why, dot, dot, dot. What do you do with it? The first step 
is acknowledge it. You know, for John the Baptist, it would be so easy for him to just go into doubt suppression. You know, to hide it, to let it fester away. Don't want to admit it. It's embarrassing. I mean, I should have stronger faith, right? But John, in asking Jesus this question, exposes he has a doubt. Would that be hard for him? Absolutely. I mean, he's John the Baptist. The shame of doubt can keep things hidden, and you can pretend like everything's fine, everything's fine. As I've pastored here, um, I've noticed the last six years, right, there's a tendency, particularly in North Shore marriages, for the appearance for everything to be fine on the outside. We're good, we love each other, but inside, host client doors, the marriage is rotting away and things are not good. But the appearance, oh no, it's all good, we're all good, we're good, until you find out something's wrong when they're calling the voice lawyers and it's too late. That's a common experience. And the same is for Christians, right? Where the, on the outside, everything's fine, we're all good, I'm loving the Lord Jesus, but inside there's a whole bunch of doubt and it's festering away, but you don't share it until all of a sudden, boom, I don't want anything more to do with Jesus. And you leave. Sometimes we're afraid to share because of the shame. And sometimes it's for good reason, right? Sometimes we're afraid to share because you may have shared in the past. I'm really struggling with it. I have this doubt and you've been shut down, right? And that's not gone too well. I'm going to give an example, which is a bit of a controversial one, but I'll try it anyway. It was a year ago now, you know, when the vaccine rolled out for kids getting vaccinated, right? If I'm honest, I had some doubts, right? Because it's the first time we're vaccinating kids. They're not really for them. It's for the benefit of other people. And so I had questions, right? But what I noticed as I asked these questions, boom, shut down. How dare you think like that? Don't think that. We've just got to do it, right? It was a bit weird. It was a bit, I just wanted to ask a question, but it got shut down by a number of people. And I realized this is what it's like for a Christian, particularly in coming to a church context, where you just want to ask a question. But no, don't talk about that. You have to have great faith. We don't talk about that. And that is a very hard and isolating thing. That's why I pray that here at the Bridge Church, right, you have the confidence to be able to share your doubt with a brother and sister and not be shut down. To be able to say, I'm actually uncertain about this. I've been harboring this doubt for a while. And to have a brother or sister who will not shut you down but to listen. And to perhaps even say, I've been there too. Because we want to be in the company of great ones like John the Baptist and have the freedom and the safety to say, I have questions, I have doubts. But sometimes it's not fear what other people think, it's actually fear what God thinks. I think if God might be disappointed in me. When I was young, I remember having these conversations with God where I was like, now God, I'm still a Christian, but I just want to think about whether you exist or not, right? Because I was worried that Jesus would return in that moment and be like, ah, oh, I'm out. No. So I had this sort of conversations about, like, okay, I'm still, I'm still, so these caveats, I'm still a Christian. But do you exist, right? It's a bit silly, isn't it? Because in the end, God is big enough to handle your questions. He's big enough to handle your doubts. He knows what's happening. And if you need any more comfort to know that it's okay, notice the way. How Jesus treats John behind his back. I mean, John's disciples go, and what does Jesus say? Well, what an idiot. Can you believe that guy? I mean, I can't believe he asked that. No, what does he say? Verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
I mean, what a sentence. Among those born of women, FYI, that's everyone, right? But there's not been anyone greater than John the Baptist, right? Jesus doesn't cancel him, he doesn't disown him, doesn't dismiss him, doesn't shame him. He honours him. See, great faith doesn't mean zero doubts. No, no, no. Great faith means being real and honest and bringing those to God. To saying help, in another word. And notice how Jesus helps John. And this is a very helpful thing of, of how we address the doubts. Jesus says, verse 4, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, it may be lost on us, but what Jesus is saying there is he's quoting extensively from Isaiah 35 and 61, right? And what he's doing says, John, the confidence you need is in God's word. To confront your doubts, you need the pages of Scripture. And you're seeing Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61 fulfilled, that God has been keeping his promises. You know, I only found out this week, you know where it says blind receive sight? No one in the Old Testament who was blind received sight. No one. And in the New Testament, outside of Jesus, no blind person received sight either. It was unique to Jesus Christ. Only he performed this miracle. And so, and so that was the expectation the Messiah would do. And they're saying, are you seeing it? We're seeing it. These blind people are seeing it too. To assure John in the midst of his doubts, Jesus goes to the pages of Scripture. At the end of this sermon, we're going to hear a story of Linda and Linda's journey through doubts. And one of the things that stuck out for me as we hear Linda's story is when she was going through men's doubts, she went, decided to go to the Holy Land, Jerusalem. Maybe that might help her in her journey with doubts. It actually didn't. She felt she still had the doubts whether she was in the Holy Land or in home. It was in the pages of the words of God that eased her doubt. Friends, God's word is the anchor we need. It's not going to leave you 100% easy and clear. But even if you're doubting God's word, you still need God's word. Because John the Baptist saw Jesus. He audibly heard him speak. And yet it is the word of God that was the healing balm for his doubts. But the other thing to notice of how to deal with doubts is knowing your place. Have a look at verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not raised anyone, risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know who's least in the kingdom of heaven? You. That you are greater than John the Baptist. Now, I don't know what's on your resume, but you can put that on there, right? Greater than John the Baptist. I mean, my dad's a pastor, and so one of the ways in which he would welcome people into our home is he would say, hey, welcome, one greater than John the Baptist. Good to have you here. And uh, often uh, it was interesting observing people's responses. Some people were like, oh, no, 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 like, uh, you know, I'm not baptised Jesus. I'm not as great as him. Get out here. But I remember Viv, who was a new Christian, and she came to the home. Dad said, hey, Viv, welcome, one greater than John the Baptist. And she stopped and she thought, is that because... I live on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, and I know what John the Baptist didn't. Got it in one. You and I 
are greater than John the Baptist because John had no idea what the Messiah would do. He had no idea of the true freedom that he would bring about, not from Rome, but from Satan, sin and death. He had a limited understanding, right? He was the greatest of all the prophets. But in his position in redemptive history, he did not see, he did not know what we know of what was to come. So John was to trust, knowing he had enough, but he did not have the whole picture. His perspective was limited. Verse 6 says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That word, do not, those words do not stumble essentially means those who trust him. Those who trust him are blessed. And friends, we have a greater privilege. We have front row seats. John Baptist was at the back, right? And seeing what Jesus was doing. We know so much more than John the Baptist did. But yet, our perspective is still limited. Jesus hasn't returned yet. We can't have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus yet. Our perspective is limited. So which means when, if, if you're going through doubts of suffering, let's say, why God? Don't you, don't you care? We know the answer can't be he doesn't because what was Jesus doing on that cross? But we still have these doubts. Why did you do that? Why did it come about like that? Where does evil come? Our perspective is still limited because Jesus hasn't returned. So we sit knowing what we have and knowing that we do not have everything. If prayer is your doubt, you know, what's the point? I'm praying, I'm praying, I've got no, no, no. We look to Jesus and know that he prayed to his Father in heaven and God said no to him and yet still loved him. So he still loves me. But why did he say no to that exact thing? We don't know. Not until you meet him face to face. There you get an answer. Our perspective is still limited. So doubts are normal, friends. Doubts are normal. And we bring them to God, acknowledging that we have them. And we come to God's word, but ultimately we trust that God is God and we are not. And our perspective is not his perspective. But there is a tipping point. There is a tipping point, a difference between doubt and disbelief. It's like I heard, doubt's like a house guest, right, who comes knocking on your door and you let them in. And they stay for a bit. They may even sleep on your couch for a bit. But in the end, guests are like doubts and you, don't, and you want them to move on, right? You don't want them to stay there permanently. But there is a real danger when they stay in and they take up shop. It's called disbelief. Jesus addresses it in the crowd. Have a look at verse 7. He asks him this question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? In other words, he's asking people, what is it you're mo- what's motivating you? Why are you investigating? Where's your heart at? Where are these questions ultimately coming from? Because when you went to go see John the Baptist, why did you go out there for? Did you go there to see a reed swaying in the breeze? You know, went all the way out to the desert to see a leaf flapping about. No. Did you go there because of to see John's fine clothes, you know? To find out, oh, what's going to be next year's fashion sense, you know? Camel hair and a belt. That's going to be good. You know, get a new keto diet, locusts and honey, you know? No, no. They didn't go out to see that. They went out to see a prophet. And what does a prophet... A prophet is going to tell you things that are not comfortable. He's not going to tell you what you want to hear, but you need to hear. 
not going to tell you things that make your life comfortable. No, no, no. Friends, you may have doubts, but at one level we need to, do, we need to doubt ourselves. We, need to have, we have questions, but we need to question ourselves and understand where our heart is at because the biggest problem is when we let doubt move in and never leave and ultimately we become the master. Where the authority is not with God, but the authority is with our own logic, reason and feelings. And in the end we shut God out and say, I don't have to change. You God have to change. And that is the difference between doubt and disbelief. Doubts are normal, very normal, like visitors to your home. But disbelief is a different story because it is at the end of the day a heart that refuses to repent, that no matter what has been told, it's never enough, never good enough. I mean, Jesus used an example with kids. Have a look, verse 16, 17. For what can I compare this generation? That's like a child sitting in the marketplace calling out, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, there was two types of games that kids played. One was, hey kids, do you want to play weddings? No. Okay. Well, other end of the do you want to play funerals? No. Neither is good enough. Neither will satisfy. And so Jesus used that as an example. Verse 18 for John came, neither eating or drinking, and they say, well, he's got a demon. Okay. Well, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, well, he's a glutton, he's drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Whatever the message, maybe more like a, a wedding, gospel of love, maybe more like a funeral, repentance. Right? Whatever the message, the answer is no. You can't win. Where they hear the truth that they need to repent, don't want to hear it. Where they hear the truth that Jesus loves them, no, don't want to hear it. In every generation, there'll be people who say, God does not play the game that I like, that I want. That in the end, we want God to be like us, and God does not work like that. That we have our doubts, have our questions, but the, end the, the question is, is our heart open? Willing to acknowledge that God is God and I am not. Because this is serious stuff. I mean, Jesus warns about disbelief, right? Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce in the towns in which most of the miracles had performed because they did not repent. I mean, these people, the Chorazin, the Bethsaida, Capernaum, they saw Jesus. They listened to him. They saw the miracles more than any other town imaginable. They saw demons flee, the blind see, the deaf hear, people raised from the dead. They saw all this, and it wasn't enough. God had shown them to quench every doubt, every uncertainty that he was the Messiah. But it wasn't enough. Their hearts were not willing because they did not want to. You might be sitting there and think, oh, I would become a Christian, James, if dot, dot, dot. The reality is, no, you won't. You will only become a Christian if you realize what every other Christian has realized. I'm a sinner, and Jesus is an amazing Savior. And you can be like the crowd that Jesus is talking to, amazed and wowed by what Jesus has done. You could know a lot about him. You can be impressed by him, but unless you repent, unless you repent, you, you are for what Jesus is for, against what Jesus is against, 
it's a waste of time. Because repentance, not proximity to Jesus, is what matters on that final day, the day, the most important day of your life, judgment day. And it's interesting, you know, the more you know and still reject, the worse it will be. Verse 24, but I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Right? What Jesus is saying there is not, there's not a one judgment for all. It does give you an indication there are different levels in hell. And the more that you know and the more that you re- and still reject, the worse it will be. Friends, Jesus does not cast judgment on those who doubt, but he does for those who disbelieve and fail to repent. Because when Jesus returns, right, and when you stand before God, and if you stand before God unforgiven with disbelief, right, God is not going to ask you, yes, but have you been a good person? No, he's not going to ask you because no one's good enough. He's going to ask you, what did you do with my son who was sent to die on that cross? And if you say, well, I had my doubt. No, no, no. You refuse to believe away from me. To be honest, this is how I became a Christian. I remember, I mean, I grew up knowing very much the miracles of Jesus, knowing the words of Jesus, knowing that he died on the cross and rose again, but thought he did it for those bad people out there. I thought, oh, that's pretty all right. I'll get in. And it wasn't until a youth leader said to me, James, you know there's no good people in heaven, just forgiven people. And that for me was a rock in my shoe. It bugged me. For about a year, it created a doubt in my heart that was a really good doubt because I was doubting me and my confident self. That was a healthy, healthy doubt. And it was a realisation that when Jesus died, he died for a sinner such as me. And the only way to God, the only hope that I have, is humbly repenting and saying sorry. That is why, friends, blessed is the one who believes in the Lord Jesus. Blessed. Because it's not what you know or what you did or how close you were. It is you are blessed by humbly coming before God in repentance and faith. And once you know that, once you've experienced that, once you stand in the certainty of God's presence because of the Lord Jesus, right? You have confidence now and on Judgment Day. You have that confidence. And once you have that, it brings comfort and security that you can be like John the Baptist, to be able to voice your doubts, ask questions, open up the word, get ready to listen, and hear the voice of the king speak to you. We're now going to watch on the screen Linda's story. Now, Linda was from my old church at MBM, and we're going to hear her journey through doubt. Let's turn our attention to the screen. So my doubt started when I heard a sermon um, at church about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so it made me question uh, whether or not I had a choice uh, in choosing God. So that's where it actually started. And from there, I had a lot of questions that just kept popping up. And uh, it, it went for about three or four years. And during that time, I was serving um, at Red Group, which is a year six to year eight um, 
uh, youth on Sundays and I had um, a group of um, East Six girls at the time and it was really, um, I guess, hard to, to sort of go every Sunday and um, encourage these girls um, about who Christ is when, when I personally didn't believe in at all or, or ultimately was struggling with who, who Christ was. So that made it um, quite hard. What was helpful along the way uh, was a few things. One thing uh, was my friends who were there for me. They, they listened and I think that gave me a lot of encouragement. Um, even just a few years down the track, them coming back and asking me the question, um, how I was going with my doubts, uh, that, that was very encouraging to know that they were listening to me. They didn't have to say anything, I didn't have to have the right words to say, but I think knowing that they were there for me um, made me uh, realise that I wasn't doing it by myself. Um, at the time there was a student minister and he was facing doubts um, during Bible college as well. So he was where I was at the time and uh, he, was, he was helpful. He had uh, made sure that um, we would deal with it and he uh, just kept asking me those hard questions and really pressed on to some issues that I didn't actually want to deal with and I didn't want to bring up. And so um, it was like just taking a Band-Aid off the wound and uh, even though it was painful at the time to go through I think uh, it was very helpful to actually speak about it and being honest about it and so um, that really helped me uh, during that time. <laughs> Having someone who had gone through what I'd gone through and uh, just knew what to not, what to do and what to say or what not to say so that was that was helpful. Um, during that time I actually uh, went on a trip uh, to Israel and um, a part of it was because I would like just would love to experience um, what Israel looked like and the lifestyle there but at the same time I had a lot of questions that maybe I thought this trip would help me deal with and I saw a lot of the history of it and I loved it I loved um, being able to have the Bible open and, and seeing all all these things but it didn't really actually do anything uh, with my faith and with my heart. Um, being so close to uh, um, where these holy places were I didn't feel any close to God even if I was sitting in my room so um, I, I really loved the experience and I enjoyed it but in terms of the questions that I had and my relationship with God um, in all honesty it didn't really do anything for me so that was unfortunate for that. So looking back, I realised that even though um, I uh, was able to have those great experiences, um, going on a trip to Israel and having friends that were there for me, um, having people who uh, would really uh, dig deep into figuring out what the issues were in my heart, um, ultimately it was a heart issue. Uh, for whatever reason, I just couldn't get to a point of just um, accepting that it was true, whatever it, whatever it was, and uh, so I don't know. I don't know if that was just pride. I don't know if it was just um, discontentment. Whatever it was, it was just uh, it wasn't real to me. So um, I just felt, looking back, that was what it was. It was just a heart issue, and I think um, the first thing that I really wanted to do was actually. Um, 
pray about that. I know that sounds I know that sounds weird, but it was just asking God that um, He would do something with my heart and uh, pleading with Him to to make me feel something for Him. Um, I don't know why it took me such a long time to actually do that, to actually come to Him um, and know that I could run to Him instead of just running away from Him all the time and and seeing that I had no excuse. Um, I had um, great brothers and sisters around me. Uh, I had God's Word. I had everything that I need to know about who He was, but for some reason uh, my heart just uh, wasn't accepting it. So I think the strange thing about my doubts was that even though through them I wanted uh, for God to do something with my heart and pleading Him to do something with my heart, uh, through those prayers I think they became the answers to my prayers to want to know Him more. Um, I guess having those moments where I was praying and desperately needing Him were the moments where I was hungering for him all the more, so I guess the strange thing was God answered those prayers, um, yeah, through my desperation of needing him. Even though I still have doubts, I know that where I am now is not where I was, and that's a better place.